You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Next up on Destination Freedom. Get him! This madness went on until Red Self, a plainclothes detective, yelled, Get the boys out of here! I'm ready to give the signal for the police to move in! The agreement had been met. The boys beat and tried to kill every rider and bystander they could get their hands on. But freedom would not be moved or stopped. Jim Peck spoke from Jefferson Hillman Hospital, barely able to speak after two beatings. I was beaten in 1947, and you can beat me, you can cuss me, but I'm still here. It's going to get rougher, but I'll be on that bus tomorrow, headed for Montgomery. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast, a copyrighted program of No Credits Production, LLC. I'm producer-director Donnie Betts. The Freedom Rides. From May until November 1961, more than 400 black and white Americans laid their lives on the line. Many endured savage beatings and imprisonment for simply traveling together on buses and trains as they journeyed through the Deep South, deliberately violating Jim Crow laws. The Freedom Riders' belief in nonviolent activism was tested as mob violence and bitter racism greeted them along the way. Freedom Rides examined the 1961 and earlier Freedom Rides from many perspectives. That of the riders themselves, the Kennedy administration, and the international community. A special guest, James Lawson, and other riders from the summer of 1961. They would join the audience for a community dialogue on race and other issues that face our nation, plus share their firsthand accounts of the rides. Featured in this program as well are singers from the Southern Journey performing songs from the Southern Freedom Movement. Next on Destination Freedom, The Freedom Rides. And now, Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom! Oh, freedom! Oh, freedom! Oh, freedom! Oh,
was simplicity itself. And any saying even has civilized society, it would have been completely innocuous. Hardly worth a second thought or meriting any comment at all. Core, Congress of Racial Equality, will be sending an integrated team of black and white together from the nation capital to New Orleans on public transportation. That's all. Except, of course, that they will be sitting randomly in buses and in integrated pairs in stations they would use waiting room facilities, casually, ignoring the white and colored signs. What could be more harmless? In any even marginally healthy society, Stokely Carmichael. Buses are coming, oh yes. Buses are coming, oh yes. Buses are coming, buses are coming, buses are coming, Today, on Destination Freedom, we take you on board the buses and trains with the women and men who made the journey for freedom on the Freedom Rides. Today, I am on deadline like so many other days. But unlike most stories, this story is different. More urgent than other deadlines that I have had in the past. You see, a bus has been burned today in Anniston, Alabama. It is Sunday, May 14, 1961. This bus carried 14 passengers. Seven were Freedom Riders. Several of these riders had been severely beaten and firebombed. I had my hands stamped on and had been struck several times by a bloodthirsty mob of white Alabamans. It happened near Forsyth and Sun Grocery outside of Anniston. What brought us here to this place at this time? We have to go back to a courageous woman. In fact, there were many courageous men and women. This woman was named Irene Morgan, who boarded a bus in Hayes Store, Virginia, on July 16, 1944, headed to Baltimore. She was 27, a defense worker, a mother who had a miscarriage. She was headed home. The bus was full. Come on, dear. You can sit on my lap. Oh, my. Thank you. Thank you. Goodness. Looks like everyone's leaving at the same time. I don't think I can stand all the way to Baltimore. I'm just getting my strength back. Well, are you okay? Oh, just had some health problems, but feeling better now. Looking forward to seeing my husband. Well, I wish you well. Next stop, Saluda! Thank goodness a stop. I'm gonna grab this empty seat now that couple got off. Irene Morgan grabbed a seat with a young black woman holding a child. The seat was in front of a white couple. This comfortable seat was in direct violation of the Virginia statute forbidding black and white mixing on public transportation. Two white passengers get on board. The driver speaks to Irene. Get up and give your seats to these people. Why, yes, sir. 
The woman with the child got up immediately and stood with her child in the aisle, but Irene Morgan didn't move. Sir, I would be happy to exchange my seat, but I have been sick and I can't stand. What did you say, nigger? I said get up now or I'll have your black ass arrested. I have been sick and I am on my way to see my doctor. I can't and won't stand. I would be happy to trade my seat with one of the folks sitting behind me. Uppity, I'll show you. The driver leaves. Oh, come on. Listen, why don't you just let him have the seat before you get us all in trouble? I paid my money. I'm not getting up. The bus driver returns with a sheriff and his deputy. Come along now, missy. Let's move so everybody can get on their way. I paid my money for a seat, just like everyone else, and I sitting. Damn it to help move your ass! No! Irene spent the next seven hours in county jail until her mother posted a $500 bond. That'll teach that up in there, nigga. However, Irene Morgan had other plans. Fed up with years of racial abuse and being pushed around, she was ready to go to court. So on October 18, 1944, she stood in front of Middlesex Circuit Judge J. Douglas Mitchell and said, I paid my money. I was minding my own business. Uh, did you kick the deputy? And he touched me. That is when I kicked him in a very bad place. I was going to bite him, but he was dirty. So I clawed him. I told that nigga that I'd use my nightstick to whip her ass. Yes, and I said, we'll whip each other. And it took both of them to get me to jail. How do you plead to the charge of resisting arrest? Guilty. $100 fine. I will pay it. And for violating segregated seating arrangement, I fine you $10. I will not pay, and I will appeal this to the Virginia Supreme Court. What Irene Morgan did not know was that she was carrying on a tradition of resistance to Jim Crow or segregated travel laws that went back as far as abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass in the 1840s, protesting on riverboats and trains. She also couldn't know that her action, along with the legal team of the NAACP, headed up by a young Thurgood Marshall, would argue and win her case before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1946. So get on board, little children, get on board. Little children, get on board. Little children, there's room for many or more. In 1946, in addition to the NAACP, there were two groups who would begin to move racial change in America forward. The Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, and FOR, Fellowship of Reconciliation, with members such as the powerhouse Howard Thurman and ACLU founder Roger Baldwin would also play major roles. <coughs> 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 As we lay next to this burning bus on the side of an Alabama road, I recall hearing stories of the 1947 Journey of Reconciliation ride. I remember no beatings, no burnings. The 1947 ride came out of a discussion between Bayard Rustin and George Hauser. Rustin, James Farmer, 
James Peck, and Hauser were all founding members of CORE. James Peck would be the only one of this group to take part in both the 1947 and 1961 rides. Rustin had previous experience in nonviolent protest. In 1942, he was arrested for refusing to move to the back of the bus on a trip from Louisville, Kentucky to Nashville, Tennessee. I was put in the back seat of a police car between two policemen. They called me everything but the child of God. When we got to the police station, they laid me down a long hallway with police on either side. They tossed me from one to the other like a volleyball, tore my coat, and roughed me up. Come here, nigga. What can I do for you? Nigga, you're supposed to be scared when you come in here. I am fortified by truth, justice, and Christ. There's no need for fear. What? I believe the nigga is crazy. Well, that crazy nigga and others, black and white, would board two buses on April 9th, 1947, in Washington, D.C. At times, freedom will demand that his followers go into a situation where even death will be, have to be faced. Direct action has to take place, picketing, striking, and so on. There were many tense moments during the next two weeks, and the return to Washington gave the riders a sense of relief and pride. Core stated that there were 26 tests of compliance to Morgan v. Commonwealth of Virginia and 12 arrests. During one of the waits in Oxford, North Carolina, while a driver tried to get a sheriff, Rustin, who was seated ne next to James Peck, heard a passenger say, Please move. Don't do this. You'll get there whether you're in front or back. While at another stop, a black porter said, What's the matter with him? He's crazy. What do you think he is? We know how to deal with him. We ought to drag him off. In Chapel Hill, a friend of the riders, Reverend Jones, was threatened. Get the niggers out of town before midnight, or we will burn your house down, you coon lover. Facing all of this, the riders returned to D.C. to no fanfare. They knew they were fighting a fight that had been fought for years. Freedom fighter and anti-lynching heroine Ida B. Wells was one who answered the call. I am writing about an incident that happened on May 4th, 1884. My name is Ida B. Wells and I am a teacher and now writer. On that day in May, I was riding the train home from Woodstock, Tennessee to Memphis. I was in the ladies' car when the conductor came to me and said, you need to move to the front of the smoking car. Well, the sections of the smoking car were divided by a thin curtain where the riders would cuss and blow their smoke anywhere they wanted, and the men would come into the ladies' car anytime they wanted. I said, I'm just fine where I am, thank you. So you are going to be trouble. I said, get up. Oh, come on, can't you move? Come on, now. He grabbed me, but he couldn't move me. I said, I'm fine here. 
The next thing I know, three men were carrying me out of my seat and into the smoking car. I got off at the next stop. The whites on the train cheered. (laughs) When I got back to Memphis, I found me a lawyer. You want to file a suit against the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad Company? (laughs) Well, I hope you know what you're doing. I'll take your case. I know what I'm doing. I just hope that you do. The court returned a verdict in favor of Wells and awarded her $500 in damages. The judge presiding over the trial stated the railroad company violated the separate but equal clause by forcing blacks to ride in the smoking car that was separate but not first class as Wells had paid for. The railroad appealed the verdict and in 1887, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the decision of the lower court and Wells was ordered to pay court costs. This was the first case of its kind in the South, and it generated tremendous public interest. Well, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Laying there in the grass in Alabama, the reporter was remembering all of these stories, all the articles he had read about past rides. He couldn't recall a time he'd heard of a bombing. Help. Help, somebody. I need water. When the Freedom Bus was just south of Anniston, a driver on a southbound Greyhound waved the driver of the Freedom Bus to pull to the side. A white man ran and yelled in the window. Be careful, there's an angry and unruly mob in Anniston. The terminal's closed. But some of the Freedom Riders thought it was a bluff and told their driver to move on. As the bus approached, some say that there were people everywhere. Others, like Hank Thomas, didn't remember seeing anyone. The station was closed. some niggas and some nigger lovers. Someone lay down in front of the bus to stop it. There were two undercover, unarmed investigators on board who managed to seal the bus from the crowd. But tires and windows were smashed. They saw a police officer, but he did nothing at first but laugh at the crowd. Finally, he cleared a path, and the bus limped away, only to be pulled over again. The bus driver got off and just walked away. (coughs) Doc, everybody, don't worry. They are just trying to scare us. The riders had seen two members of the mob smash a window and throw something into the window. At first, no one moved, but then smoke began to fill the bus. They rushed off only to be met by fists, baseball bats, and curses. Hank Thomas falls off the bus. A white man comes up to him. You all right, boy? Before he can answer, the man hits him in the head with a baseball bat. Someone help, please. One brave little white girl did help. Janie Miller, 
12 years old. Here, here, take some water. Do you want some water? Oh, are you okay? I don't understand why they're doing this. Here, take some water. I just don't understand. Please, please just take some water. No, Janie Miller could not understand why her neighbors would bomb and burn a bus because black and white Americans dared to sit side by side on Mother's Day. Help! Please, may I use your phone to call an ambulance? It was Genevieve Hughes who had found a white couple who was brave enough to help. Hughes described the hospital experience. There was no doctor, only a nurse. They had me breathe pure oxygen, but that only burned my throat and did not relieve the coughing. I was burning hot, and my clothes were a wet mess. Finally, a woman doctor came in. She had to look up smoke poisoning before treating us. They didn't do anything for Hank. I guess they weren't sure because I was white, that I was one of the writers just like Hank Thomas. The Greyhound Freedom Bus nightmare was far from over. The superintendent of the hospital issued an order to evacuate because of the threat of violence. Joe Perkins, the leader of the Greyhound group, placed a call to Reverend Fred Shuttleworth in Birmingham. Fred, we need your help to get out of Aniston to Birmingham. Shuttleworth, the firebrand, tireless freedom struggle worker, and co-founder of the SCLC, knew what had to be done. Joe, my deacons are on their way. Hold on. Gentlemen, <clears throat> this is dangerous, but you must carry no weapons. Trust in the Lord and have faith. The deacons left, and as soon as they were out of sight, pulled out their shotguns from under their car seats. The convoy of deacons made it to the hospital, made their way through the crowd of KKK, and headed back to Birmingham. On the way back, the group asked the deacons about the fate of the trailway bus riders. You see, there were two buses with riders that left that day. On that bus were Jim Peck, Charles Person, Herman Harris, Jerry Moore, the Bergmans, and Ike Reynolds. Also, two members of the press from Jet Magazine, plus, unknown to them, two Alabama Klansmen and some regular passengers. As soon as the bus left Atlanta, they heard, You niggers will be taken care of once you get in Alabama. Threats and taunts were delivered all the way to Anniston. The bus pulled into the station. The station is quiet. Peck and a few other trailway riders buy some sandwiches. The bus driver was named John Patterson, who now had about seven or eight thugs by his side. We got word that the bus has been burned to the ground and the folks will do the same to us unless we get these niggers off the front seats. Now this bus ain't going nowhere until them black freedom riders get to the back where they belong. I'm leaving. Sir, we are interstate passengers and we have the right to sit anywhere. Nigger, get back. You in Bama, you ain't up north, and niggers ain't nothing here. With those words, he punched Person in the face. A second Klansman hit Harris. Both black freedom riders refused to fight back. Peck and 61-year-old white Walter Bergman, freedom rider, who both were seated in the back, rushed forward to protest. 
Then all hell broke loose. The men were beaten. Walter was knocked cold. His wife begged them to stop. Oh, stop it! Stop it! You're killing him! Oh, I'll kill the bastard! Wait. Don't kill him. Help me drag these niggas onto the back. Ain't no niggas sitting up front and their nigger-loving friends can ride in the back with them. The KKK thugs drag all four men to the back of the bus and dump them on top of each other. Just then, Patterson, the bus driver, came back with a police officer who smiled and said, Don't worry about no lawsuits. I didn't see nothing. Patterson, get these bastards out of here. Take them on to Birmingham. It would take 53 stitches to close Jim Peck's wounds, but he and three other riders were not swayed, nor was there hell of a Mother's Day over yet. We took a trip on a Greyhound bus. <laughs> we don't come and it won't be long to fight segregation where we must. <laughs> freedom come and it won't be long. Me say freedom, freedom. oh no freedom. Freedom come and it won't be long. The bus took the back roads to Birmingham. What we saw when we arrived at the station was unreal. The KKK and their police allies were all in place with chains, sticks, and clubs. What we found out later was that this welcoming committee had been planned and well thought out. It had been agreed that for 15 minutes there would be no police in or near the trailway station. In April 1960, New York Times columnist Harry Salisbury had written, Birmingham is consumed by lawlessness and racial oppression. Every channel of communication, every medium of mutual interest has been fragmented by the emotional dynamite of racism, reinforced by the whip, razor, gun, bomb, mob, and police. Now this reporter and the Freedom Riders were to experience the centuries of rage found in this Alabama town firsthand. I saw Jim Peck get beaten again, person get beaten, I saw Walter Bergman get his wife on a city bus only to be beaten again himself. Get him! This madness went on until Red Self, a plainclothes detective, yelled, Get the boys out of here! I'm ready to give the signal for the police to move in! The agreement had been met. The boys beat and tried to kill every rider and bystander they could get their hands on. But freedom would not be moved or stopped. Jim Peck spoke from Jefferson Hillman Hospital, barely able to speak after two beatings. I was beaten in 1947, and you can beat me, you can cuss me, but I'm still here. It's gonna get rougher, but I'll be on that bus tomorrow, headed for Montgomery. Well, the only chains that we can stand are the chains of hand in hand. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Got my hand on the freedom plow. Don't think nothing for the journey now. Keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Keep your eyes on the 
George Huddleston Jr., congressman from Alabama, stated, Every decent Southern deplores violence, but these trespassers, these self-appointed merchants of racial hatred, got just what they deserved. So, as I file this urgent report, make note that the buses and the riders kept coming that summer of 1961, carrying riders from the Nashville student movement. These students had been in nonviolence workshops led by James Lawson. Lawson, who had gone to jail rather than fight in the Korean War, had lived in India and studied the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi. He said, Through nonviolence, courage displaces fear. Love transform hate. Justice for all overthrows injustice. These writers and hundreds of others like Diane Nash, Nash organized the Nashville group. Traveling in the segregated South was humiliating. The very fact that there were separate facilities was to say to black people and white people that blacks were subhuman and so inferior that we could not even use public facilities that white people used. Buses are a-coming, oh yeah. Robert Kennedy said, who the hell is Diane Nash? John Lewis spoke about joining the rides. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Would there be a better day or a tomorrow or next year? Would it be less dangerous then? Would someone else's children have to risk their lives instead of us risking ours. Buses are a coming, oh yes. The buses kept coming with high school student Emily Horn, refugee from Nazi Germany Henry Schwarzschild, John McGuire, Bernard Lafayette Jr., Terry Sullivan. Buses are a coming. Buses are a-coming. With Doris Smith, Jimsburg, who was beaten senseless in Montgomery, George Blevins, Ernest Rip Patton, and James Morris Lawson, Jr. There were more than 400 black and white riders who answered the call. Buses are a-coming. Hang on to the world as it spins around. Just don't let the spin get you down. Things are moving fast. Hold on tight and you will last. Take it from me someday we'll all be free. You have just heard Destination Freedom, story of the Freedom Riders. The Freedom Rides is written, directed, and produced by Donnie L. Betts with selected material from Freedom Riders by Ann Bansom, Freedom Riders by Raymond Arsenuit, reporting civil rights by the Library of America. The cast for Freedom Rides includes Donnie L. Betts, Leonard Barrett as the reporter, Candy Brown as the narrator, Pete Connors, Jada Roberts, Kurt Soderstrom, 
Chris Angela Washington. The Southern Journey members on vocals were Jennifer Adams, Dee Galloway, Chuck Stevenson, and Ann Zinchlog. Carlton Bacon on guitar, vocals, and various instruments. Our Foley artist is Itha Gabriel. Stage manager, Jim Denton. The engineers for tonight's broadcast were Will Robinson, Ryan White, and John Schaefer. Special thanks to Anthony Garcia and the staff of El Centro Su Teatro. And now, producer, director, Donnie L. Betts, and musical guest, Southern Journey. Later, he will be joined by Reverend James Lawson, Larry Borum, George Bevlins, Terry Sullivan, and Dr. Vincent Harding. Thank you, Kurt, and thank you, everyone. And now we hear a great selection from Southern Journey. Soul of a man. 
Southern Jenner, you're listening to Destination Freedom, and I'd like to introduce Mr. Larry Boehm, a community worker and activist, to lead our panel tonight. Thank you so much, Donnie. This has been such a wonderful pleasure being here tonight. And we have three fantastic panelists who are going to uh, make remarks, and then we will have opportunity for the audience to ask questions, make comments, and to join in this discussion. First, I'd like to introduce uh, Reverend James Lawson, a man who I have heard so much about over many years and have an opportunity to meet tonight. Uh, Reverend Lawson. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to be here uh, and to hear this radio broadcast, which I think was excellent. Personally, I thought it was excellent. Um, it uh, gives you uh, a lot of the message of the Freedom Ride in a fashion that helps us to um, rehearse in our own lives what um, our country needs even more in the 21st century. Um, I thought the music and the voices and the various characters were indeed wonderful. And it's very impressive to me as one who participated in those actual events in uh, 61 and had some knowledge of most, many of the people who were engaged in it. The, the thing that I want to lift up, I think, is this, that while it's important for us to rehearse this history, and it needs to be recovered in so many ways, uh, American has a nasty habit of denying that it has a rich history of people, ordinary people, who did all sorts of magnificent things on behalf of equality, liberty, and justice, on behalf of a better society, on behalf of helping the vision of a nation to emerge where people participate in their own self-government, governance, and uh, are, have a sense of nobility about themselves and about others. Uh, but it's important for us to remember that now in the 21st century, we need similar kinds of actions that took place between 1953 and 1973, before and after, give or take. We need similar action. Our nation is more vulnerable than ever before. I'll say it that way. And it's not that we cannot live through it, because we will live through it. But if the nation is to recover, we the people, like an Occupy Denver, must begin to perform creative, nonviolent demonstrations that help to engender the power of the people to counterattack and to confront the powers that be that want to cheat, want to destroy, want to dominate and control all the people of this country, not just passing the wealth from the 80% to the one of 5%, but dominating the whole earth with, with our 800, more than 800 military installations in 131 countries, and with fleets of ships and planes that can go anywhere in the world within a 24-hour period. If 
if the trend of that kind of militarism and domination is to be halted, we the people of America must have a great burst of recognition that we have power as in demonstrated in this Freedom Ride escapade of 1961 and that we must begin to exercise that power if we want our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to have an America that somehow reflects the nobility of human life. Thank you. Reverend James Lawson, such a wonderful indication that the courage is still there, the activism is still there. Uh, we are now going to have another panelist, uh, Mr. Terry Sutherland, who is going to uh, speak to us. So at this point, Dr. Kerry Sutherland. Uh, yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was my uh, good fortune to be uh, in the right place at the right time. I was on the, um, living on the south side of Chicago in May of 61, and I attended a rally of the uh, Woodlawn organization, and this fellow uh, Jerome Smith from New Orleans Corps gave this inspirational talk, and, and he'd just gotten off the Freedom Ride, he'd just gotten out of jail, and so he testified to his faith in um, Jesus and Gandhi, and I knew a I'd been involved somewhat with this before because I was involved with the Catholic Worker Movement, and I'd met some of the um, same people that uh, Reverend Lawson uh, knew that were involved with, like, uh, the Fellowship of Reconciliation and the um, different uh, different organizations, and there there was a small group of them that out of the um, out of which the the um, civil rights movement grew, and also the anti-war movement, and I got caught up in it, and um, and then so anyway, I went to I was a freedom rider to uh, in June of '61, and I was one of about 300 arrested in Jackson, and I was one of a little group of diehards that we stayed our whole time. I was actually in the. Mississippi State Penitentiary, four and a half months there. And starting off, uh, I had a friend from Chicago who was a, um, he uh, had escaped from, with his family from Austria, just ahead of the Nazis, Felix Singer. And he'd made up his mind to go total non-co-op, and <laughs> I didn't really want to do it too much, but uh, he couldn't, he didn't, nobody else was, going to help him, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it too, and so anyway, as a result of that, and they, um, they treated us um, pretty rough when we got to Parchman, when, uh, and they used cattle prods, and they used um, these wrist breakers on us, and there's a story about it, Bill Mahoney wrote the story about it, and it shows up in some of these books, but anyway, I wound up, uh, as a result of that, I wound up over with the Black Freedom Riders down at the end, and I wound up right next to uh, Bernard Lafayette from Nashville. And I, I went there, I was thinking of myself as a journalist, and so I had the chance to learn from Bernard Lafayette about the Nashville group, and um, Reverend James Lawson was the, um, the leader and teacher of this group, and 
I later I wrote an article about the uh, Freedom Ride then later on, but um, that was kind of my first introduction to this group. And um, so anyway, that's that was my involvement. I'm sure you have some questions and such, you know. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Mr. Terry Sutherland. Our last panelist, and then we will have a selection uh, from our uh, musicians. Our last panelist is Dr. Vincent Harding, gentleman who inspires all of us and has for many years. Dr. Vincent Harding. I am very honored to be sitting between these two brothers who have the story of the movement in their bones. And it's just a great privilege to be able to say that I have known at least this brother ever since 1961. And what I have found is that wherever folks from that powerful movement find each other, we consider ourselves tied together by history, by experience, and by a sense of our determination to help others to keep going. I want to just call your attention to a couple of things from the music that was shared with us that may help us to understand how and why the folks who went through hell to make it possible for us to be here, how they could do that. One of the most important songs of the movement that you heard sung was taken, like many of the songs of the music, from the black church, which in turn were taken from the Bible that the black church found so important to its life. And one of those songs was, Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. Hold on. This was absolutely central to the strength of that movement. Keeping your eyes on the prize meant don't forget what you are here for. And you see, that then ties in to how was it that people could take beating and kicking and cursing and shouting and not feel that they had to return that. They were able to do that because they knew that they had to keep their eyes on the prize. The prize, the goal, was not to show how big and bad they were, but the goal was to break down those laws that were against human development. And so whatever happened, however they were hit, however they were beat, they had to keep their eyes on the prize and keep going 
forward to bring them to a place like this. And this is why I always find it very helpful for myself to think about that little bit of terminology that kept coming up. How come they didn't fight back? And what is clear to me is that fighting back was not keeping their eyes on the prize. Fighting back would put them back where their opponents were. Fighting back would put them in the same spirit, the same trap that their opponents were in. So instead of fighting back, they fought forward. They fought forward. They kept going forward. That was their fight, to fight to go forward. And I just find that very important for my own life as I keep thinking about those days. Fighting back is not the issue. How do we go forward with our eyes on the prize is the real issue in every generation. Every generation must figure out what the prize is and then move in that direction and not be taken backwards by those who would try to pull them back. So I just am amazed and joyful when I see this brother of mine who is older than I am, if you can imagine that, <laughs> still, still on the path, still after the prize of creating a more just and humane American society. I just give thanks to the spirits to the ancestor, to the creator, that that can continue to go on. And I stop where I began, that it is a great privilege and honor for me to sit between veterans like these and know that there might be some bit of our life that will help to create another generation of those who are gonna go on and keep their eyes on the prize and make this the country that still it can be and must be if our children are going to live. Give us a little sense of the direction that took these, these three waves of activity and action. Now we know, of course, that black people have been struggling in this country for freedom forever since we got here. But now there have been in the modern era some very important events and certainly the freedom rides and the uh, set-ins were important. Give us some sense of how you were approaching that, uh, that whole period that you were so active in that your name became just, uh, just a household word. I, I've heard about you all my life. Please, uh, Reverend Lawson, say another couple words for us. Well, I, I think that um, the history of the movement that is called the Civil Rights Movement is really a part of the key for the United States finding its soul and its life. Uh, for the black and white community, the Hispanic community, the Indian community, the Asian community, the Mexican-American community, uh, finding the wisdom and the compassion we need if our country is to become different from 
uh, plantation capitalism and from monopolistic capitalism and from a war centered and war for profit and perpetual war society. It's an important key. The movement has to be seen not primarily in terms of a civil rights movement, but it has to be seen in terms of the continuing effort on the part of the American people, in this instance, black American people, to extend the meaning of equality, liberty, and justice for all, and developing a society not only of self-governance, but in which participatory democracy, every person's participation, more than any kind of matter of voting, becomes critical to that effort. So I, I want simply to say that the Freedom Ride was a part of that emerging movement. Uh, it was a direct action, nonviolent direct action part of the movement. There are a number of dimensions of the movement. The direct action, nonviolent direct action movement, uh, in a very real sense in the 60s, began with the Montgomery bus boycott. And the role that that boycott played in inspiring many of us who were engaged in the struggle. So that's an important part. Uh, Dr. King did not emerge because um, he had some kind of designs on becoming a powerful person. He emerged because the black community of Montgomery asked him to be president of the boycott. And they structured it. And he had the God-given gifts, and he had prepared his life intellectually, morally, spiritually, physically to assume such a role that he had no notion of it before it ha he had no notion of before it began to happen, December the 5th, 1955. So that was the first wave. That went around the world. People don't realize that. I'm in India as a coach Methodist missionary at Hislop College in Nagpur, India. It's the topic of concern for BBC, All India Radio, all of the magazines and the, and the newspapers of India. It flashes across Africa and Latin America that in the belly of the beast, maybe the Babylonian beast, <laughs> a people long oppressed began to wake up and confront the beast confront the injustice and, and the rest of it. So that was the first campaign. And the sit-in movement was the second camp, direct action campaign of this emerging movement. The Freedom Ride was the third emerging campaign of direct action. Now the Freedom Ride had two phases. The first phase was as court planned it. But in Birmingham, that first 13 or 16 people were so demoralized by injury and by the hostilities and all that they were worn out. And they voted to no longer continue the ride but to catch a plane from Birmingham to New Orleans and celebrate May 17th in New Orleans. That itself is another whole story. But at that time, the Nashville movement, the Nashville campaign, that it had in-depth study and training and participation in nonviolent action. 
the sit-in campaign that produced an economic boycott, mass meetings, a magnificent silent march, civil disobedience, moved from the sit-in to desegregation of the theaters in 60 and 61. In the summer of 61, we were carrying on a campaign for getting employment of black people in the grocery stores where we shopped. So uh, that was a protracted study that went from year to year with different targets and different changes, different efforts. Uh, we, in our understanding of nonviolent strategy, and, and this is so important, because nonviolence requires strategy and deep planning and deep thinking, as well as kind of boot camp training so people are willing to submit to the common discipline. If you think that you cannot sit still while you're being slapped, remember that there's no such nonsense about that when we call our young men and women to go into the armed forces who go through boot camp to learn how to kill. The diseases we have among our veterans is an indication that learning to kill also is a major disorder for human life Amen. that has to be corrected. So the point is, you, you can learn also how to turn the other cheek if you want to, even if you determine that it's practical both for the well-being of your own life and for the ongoing nurturing of the soil by which nonviolent struggle can emerge. I, I like so much what Vincent said, uh, fighting back. Well, fighting back means you go back, back, exactly backwards. We have to fight in such a way that we help ourselves and our families and our human and the human race to go forward to find new resources by which we can live in this world together and solve our problems in fashions that will prepare a better future. The war prepares a future that is more chaotic. The wars help to escalate division and hatred as well as injury to body and soul. They do not solve the problem of how you feed the children of the earth. They, they can't. <laughs> they can blow cabal <laughs> to smithereens, but they cannot build a city where justice and truth abide. <laughs> cannot do it. And you can't make it happen. Uh, so nonviolence is the emergence in the 20th century of a science of social change that says we human beings have the potential and the possibility of working in the midst of conflict in a fashion that enables us to sow the seeds for going forward of the human race. Help teach us, Reverend. Help teach us, Reverend Lawson. Now, we're gonna have an opportunity we have two other gentlemen here on stage. You've heard from both of them, Mr. Terry Sutherland, Dr. Vincent Harding, uh, who've been very involved in all of the things that we've been hearing about. And um, I would like you at this point, if you're interested in asking a question, uh, to direct it at one of these gentlemen uh, to come forward. We have a mic here. Uh, give us your name, just your name, so we'll know who you are. 
Keep your comments brief. Ask questions. Let's hear from these warriors, these veterans. And um, before we do that, but let's thank our musical uh, selection, the people who've been so kind to us to share that beauty with us. Okay? But beyond that, uh, uh, at this point, uh, if you have a question, would you just say your name and direct it to one of these three gentlemen? Hi, my name is Regina Jackson, and my question is just directed to the panel. Um, I've always felt that one of the prices I pay for living in a democracy is participation. The American voter is very apathetic about their responsibility for living in a democracy. What would you say to Americans, especially African Americans, to make them get off their butts and go to the polls and participate in our democracy? Well, I, I'm, I'm still a believer in um, nonviolent direct action, and I most of my life have been involved with it. And uh, I, I think really you have to. I don't have a great faith in voting. Where what I mean is, you step behind a curtain and you deploy one finger once every two years, um, and you expect that to change the world, and the world doesn't change. And so what I argue is that you have to vote every day with both hands and both feet. <laughs> and that you really, you know, you have to change the world that way. Dr. Harding? My thought is in the same way. What was the name of the sister who just spoke? Regina Jackson. Regina. Regina, one of the critical things that we must do is to make sure that this generation hears these stories. One of the reasons why people do not get up and do what needs to be done is that they're not familiar with the fact that they are part of a long tradition of people who've been working for change in this country for hundreds of years. They don't know that. And we who know it have no right to just say they're sitting on their butts. Our job is to get off of our butts and teach and show and develop and make possible other people learning what we have learned. For instance, some of our teachers, some of our parents, some of our pastors should be taking younger people down to Occupy Denver and asking them, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Tell us more about this. When we went to sit in, when we went to demonstrate People did come and try to find out what we were about, and we got them to join in with us. Every generation has to figure out what is my role? How can I be, be a part of creating this America that Jim, in his 80s, still believes is possible? An America that does not dominate the world, but America that seeks to cooperate with the world. An America that takes care of its children and its elders. 
I think that as we share the word about the history, about the current things that are going on, we will encourage each other to get up and do the work that has to be done. Reverend Lawson, do you want to weigh in shortly on that? Gentlemen, the next question. Please, uh, say your name. Yes, welcome, brothers. I'm Arkansas, although people call me Strider now. Um, if you are a human being, you are a participant. You might as well learn what's going on and get, get your feet on the road and do the right thing. Uh, I'd like to point out three little things. One, most people don't know that there were lots and lots of freedom rides all over the South. Many of them headed to Jackson or to New Orleans. Some of them never made it. There's one that went from L.A., and they only got as far as Houston. They got thrown in jail, and two of the men were almost beaten to death in, in jail in Houston. So it's a, it's a real big story. Um, I Three and a half years later, this is how significant it was for me, because when I hitchhiked to Selma to get involved and work with SNCC, three and a half years later, as I was on the road, I, uh, on, on, usually it was black people would give me a ride, but I, at least once it was a white man. And I get in the truck, and he's got his gun up there and stuff, and he said, uh, you ain't one of them uh, GDNL Freedom Riders, are you? Um, Freedom Rider was one of the only epithet that they called us that could be spoken in mixed company. Everything else had real heavy language, but we knew what that meant. This is three and a half years later. That defined the movement, according to the white rednecks in the South, is Freedom Riders. And the other thing, I'm, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, the bravest man I ever knew. And he drove his own car to Anniston that day as well. And he just died two months ago at age 89. And what a wonderful man and a legacy from people like that. Thank you. Thank you, Strider. <laughs> Any other questions, comments, please come to the mic. Share with us. My name is Cleveland Williams. Uh, peace and blessings and honor to the elders. Um, I would like to know... Um, in view of um, the movement that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, those freedom fighters uh, spearheaded as to a social order uh, to be socially accepted, and today, um, economically, we have it moved as a people. Is it vital that we concentrate as a people to become economically accepted, respected, because we seem to be leaving out our economics because uh, our economical power, far as um, the percentage of what we control is, hasn't changed for over 100 years. Uh, do we... Uh, consider ourselves going forward as a people and have no economical power or no economical voice? Thank you. Uh, which of you gentlemen would like to respond to that? Or all three of you? 
I'd like to start out but just by touching on a couple of things about what I understand to be the background of your question, dear brother. I want to say that as I understand what we were doing in the South, particularly now, during the movement days that are represented by the Freedom Rides, our goal when we were at our best was not to be accepted. That is not a human goal. You accept yourself, you believe in yourself, you know that you are a child of God, you don't need others to accept you. That's right. What we did was to accept the responsibility yes. that we had as human beings and as citizens of this country to make the country what it needed to be. The main task was not about us. The main task was let America be America what it said it was, what its founders at their best believed it could be. That was our job. Now, what economics has to do with that is very clearly a critical part of the issue. But I want to back away from the idea that we were seeking for acceptance, because that puts the other people Mm -hmm. in a superior role that they're going to accept us. Mm. No, we were seeking to change this country for the better. That was our job. In order to change it for the better, as we see with Occupy every place in this country, in order to change it for the better, we have to deal with the economics of the country. And that's all that I want to say about that. Thank you. Thank you. Next, uh, another questioner. Thank you so much. It is a humbling experience to listen to you all tonight. It's a humbling experience, my name is Alan Gilbert, to listen to you all tonight. And I wanted to thank Donnie for all the work he's done on the show and everybody else who's up here. Um, And I guess two broad points. Um, America is today murdering with drones under President Obama teenagers in Waziristan who are going to take pictures of the carnage which America has levied on Pakistan. And just to go along with what James Lawson said, I think we need to have a strong anti-militarist movement, and I'm active with Occupy, and I tried to get a whole bunch of people, including some at Occupy DU, to come here tonight because this experience of what you all did is such a powerful message. And the words, the science of nonviolence, particularly in what Lawson taught, really an important thought. And I just have a comment on I think it's very easy to be disappointed with people. But if you look at the prison system, 
which Dr. Harding has been very concerned about. The prison system in America occupies 2.3 million people, 25% of the world's prison population. There are another 5.3 million on probation, hard for them to vote. I got a friend, Asian American, Vietnamese orphan, involved with the prison system. He worked on the Obama campaign a little bit, but it's very hard for him to be out there. I think that this effort to speak for ourselves to transform America, as you were emphasizing, is the most important thing. And I just wanted to underline this point about the prison system because it needs to be broken. Thank you very much. Next, we've, I know all of you have questions, and we just appreciate you coming up and, and sharing them and sharing your comments with us. Hi, my name's Naila. Um, my question is, what do you think your biggest accomplishment in life is so far? What is your biggest accomplishment in your mind, in, in your life? So far, you've got a lot, lot farther to go. Is she addressing me or all of I us? I think all of you, perhaps. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to keep going, I think, and, uh, and, and to have, you know, recovered my faith, I, I did go through a period of... Um, of uh, disillusionment and discouragement and um, and to find your way back to faith uh, see, I don't you know you start out with a faith and typically it's uh, there's a whole mixture of false and true in that faith um, one of the advantages of plunging into the movement is that it uh, it forces you to sort those things out and uh, but you know it's a lot of people wound up in a place of despair after the there was you know there was the great hope and uh, of the early 60s and then later on it was it was very hard to find and I, I knew many people who were became very discouraged and disillusioned and um, so I don't know you know to just to keep going and. Uh, I have to say that um, to rediscover a, a faith in God, now my, my faith in God is very different from the one I started with, but, um, but I do have a faith and uh, that, you know, you, that you keep going and, or, or God keeps you going. Sometimes you don't know which it is. And, um, you men are great teachers and examples, and I am so inspired up here tonight. I hope all of you, each of you, will also answer that question, just briefly, if you can. That's important. What, what do you see in your life that's made you proud, that you, know, that you feel everyone should have an opportunity to discover through activity and through participation? Well, many, many different things, but I think the critical thing for me has been my discovery of the building of the human community. I, I, I have seen my life as an instrument for helping all kinds of people for at the basic place of their journey of life. And so I'm probably most proud of that fact. My three sons, three grandchildren, my wife, 
that small community, the immediate, but then much, much more than that, uh, the community of the movement. Uh, I think one of the things that I feel about myself is that I've found myself uh, a good part of my life with a supporting cast. <laughs> Many of them invisible, but who've made impact in my life. There's, there's a text and says, since we are surrounded by so great a force of witnesses, I, I feel myself surrounded by a community of love and truth and justice, and that greatly stimulates me and provokes me and Terry, uh, so that, that it is a part of my ambition to go on, <laughs> get some of the work done that mm -hmm. I know can still be done. So uh, I'll see that. Where is the sister who asked the question? What is, what is your name? My name is Naila. Naila? Naila. Naila. Naila, I'd like to raise a question about the question. I don't think that that's the best question that you can ask people like this. If you notice from the answers that you've already begun to get, the focus is not on what they have accomplished and that they're proud of, but what are the gifts that have been most important in our life? The gift of his family, the gift of his faith, that is where I think we ought to be going. Not towards what have you done that you're proud of, but what have you received that you're grateful for? Amen. That's the way that I would like to put it for me. Yeah. I've received love. I've received encouragement. I've received companionship with people who are the most magnificent people in the world. And so I tend not to think so much in terms of an accomplishment, because that can put you off on the wrong path. I think rather, what has been given to me? And so much has been given to me that I would be a fool if I did not keep giving, giving as I've been given. Thank you. Uh, one more uh, question. We have time for just one more comment or question. One second, please. My name is James Cowan, and my question is taken from the context of a book written by Ellis Coase, and he speaks to the difficulty in getting younger, black, uh, uh, younger blacks involved in their belief that we are now in a post-racial society. And I'd like, uh, like the panel to address the, the whole notion of being in a post-racial society. Take your turns. <laughs> you can all handle oh, that. Yes. I don't think we're in a post-racial society. Amen. I think that we have spent too many hundreds of years mm. building a racialized society to feel that one election or one campaign mm. or one person yeah. <laughs> will suddenly change the action of hundreds of years, that that's not a wise way to think. Mm. My sense is that we've come to a point where perhaps we can see more clearly 
the kind of society that we're in, but we can also see, as I heard Jim saying earlier today, looking at the history that we've been through, we can also see that we have much more power to bring about change for the better than we dream. Mm. And so instead of thinking that automatically it's change and we don't have to do anything, rather what we must be thinking now is, boy, we have more power than we realize. We must do more than we ever thought we had to do. That's where I am now. Right. What are the next tasks right. for us in breaking down right. the forces of racism and sexism and classism and all of the things that keep us from being human? We are still on our way to a human society, and we can only go that way if we go that way together. Thank you. Thank you. You've just heard from three giants, courage, humanity, strength, humility. We have been uh, blessed and privileged to hear from these three warriors, uh, gentlemen who have given and sacrificed so much to help all of us and to help us find that place that uh, Dr. Harding's talking about. So thank you again. Thank you. Uh, again, my name is Donnie Best, and this show is Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Tuning into history. So again, I thank you. Have a blessed night. Drive safely. We'll see you again soon. That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. I'm producer director Danielle Betts. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by the Bonfi Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, Arts and Society and Karen and Johnny Klein. Destination Freedom Black Radio Days is produced by Danielle Betts. The series is remixed by Maurice Smith, a.k.a. Reese. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts, hashtag NoCreditsProduction, LLC, hashtag Black Radio Days, hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. 
at exploreminnesota.com live.